Okay, Jesse, last week was truly toxic. What's the story this week? When a suburban PTA mom is arrested for a decade-old murder, her community is stunned to discover her scandalous past. I'm Andy Gazette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about forlorn lovers, concerned families, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And thank you guys, as always, for delivering just about the greatest reviews I've ever read for any podcast ever. Yeah. I mean, you might be a little biased, but... (laughs) (laughs) Totally biased. But no, those were... you guys are so thoughtful and smart and just cute. I love them all. So thank you guys so, so, so much. And... Just wanted to say, Andy, as we go hurtling towards Valentine's Day, some of our listeners are going through some heartbreak. Okay. So I wanted to give a shout out to Gia. Oh, yeah. You know our girl Gia? Yeah. You were not picking up what I was putting down. I wasn't. I was like, what are you doing? Are you sending like candy heart Valentines out to people? No, but I think I'm going to get some Valentine's Day cards to put stickers in for the next season because the holiday cards were so much fun. So if you have not gotten your stickers for your reviews yet, please DM us so I can send you a Valentine's Day card. But going back to Gia, our sweet Gia, one of our listeners is a teenager and her mother told us that she is having her first heartbreak. And we just want you to know that we've been there, we've gone through it and we're here for you and we love you. I know the young first heartbreak always hurts the most. First cut is the deepest. That's what Cheryl Crow said. Yeah, and she was right. She was right. And also on our discussion group, there was somebody who wishes to remain anonymous who was also going through some heartbreak. So just wanted you all to know that Andy and I wrap you in our warm and loving embrace and want to tell you that it does get better. And we've been there. For sure. But yeah, let's talk about a pretty heartbreaking situation. Are you ready to get into it, Andy? I am. Okay. So for today's story, I used the book Seduced by Evil by Michael Fleeman. And I also watched a People Magazine Investigates show called Alaskan Temptress. 48 hours program called Love and Death in Alaska. And then a Cinemaholic article that I will tell you more about later. In the fall of 2006, Michelle Linehan was living a suburban dream life. She and her handsome doctor husband had settled in Olympia, Washington, and Michelle quickly became a pillar of the community. Smart, beautiful, and wholesome, Michelle had a master's degree, an adorable seven-year-old daughter, was building a thriving laser and Botox clinic from the ground up, and she's still somehow made time to volunteer at a rape crisis center, teach Sunday school, and lead the PTA. Um, 
Yeah. She is what busy. was she taking that was helping her? Because <laughs> I'm like barely hanging on. <laughs> and maybe well, do you- like two of those things. You'll find out because Michelle has some secrets. Friends marveled at everything Michelle was able to accomplish, all with a charming smile and a welcome demeanor. Michelle herself would tell you some of her fondest memories included hosting neighborhood pizza parties for her daughter and their friends, the noise level of happy children deafening, the kitchen a mess of dough and sauce. This was who Michelle was. This was the real her she would find herself pleading to the media, her community, and later a judge. You see, Michelle's wicked past had caught up with her when she was torn away from this domestic bliss and charged with murder in a decade-old Alaska cold case. The victim? A man who had loved Michelle and who had been cruelly used, abused, and tossed away after the then-exotic dancer had squeezed every last penny out of him. And she wasn't alone. Another wannabe lover she met as an erotic entertainer had allegedly pulled the trigger. He, too, would face justice in an Alaskan courtroom long, long after the heat of this bizarre love triangle had cooled to a chill. So who was the real Michelle? The cold-blooded, seductive young woman who had conned men out of thousands of dollars using her body and promises of intimacy? Or the one covered in flour, delighting in her daughter's pizza-making skills? We're going to talk about it today on an extra chilly love murder, where it seems you can run, but you can't hide from your past, especially when that past includes murder. So let's open by talking about the woman of the hour, Michelle Hughes. Michelle was born on October 12, 1973, the youngest of two daughters born into a military family that bounced around the U.S. until they settled down in New Orleans. From an early age, Michelle adored animals. She wanted to be a veterinarian when she grew up, and she would bring home strays of just about any animal variety. Her mother, Sandy McWilliams, would later say, the only two things I absolutely refused to allow her to have in the home was a snake and a monkey. I literally was going to say, did she have snakes? (laughs) My brother used to catch snakes outside and then try to put them in terrariums, and they inevitably got out every single time. And my entire family wouldn't tell me when they got out. And so like, I'd be like cleaning my room and I'd pick up a shirt off the ground and there'd be a snake there. Oh, I'm I'm still recovering. I have like post-snake traumatic stress disorder. (laughs) Post-traumatic snake disorder. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Michelle was a very pretty girl. She had beautiful blue eyes, a very nice face, and natural brunette hair that she dyed blonde in her late teens and early 20s. Are you laughing at nice face? (laughs) Yeah. Very nice face. She had a nice face. It just, it's like, you know, symmetrical. And I mean, I guess people would think she was attractive. A lot of people did. So (laughs) survey says... Michelle was very attractive. I had a really hard time pinpointing someone she looked like, though. I think you guys will probably check the Instagram and come up with a better idea than I did. The closest I could think was when she dyes her hair blonde. She looks kind of like a curvier um, Amber Heard a little bit. Okay. Michelle left home in her teens before graduating high school to try modeling in New York City. So she did not end up working as a professional model, but she did end up working for a modeling agency for a little while. 
Well, living in New York, she dated and lived with a deli owner who was 10 years her senior named Pat Gigante. He later told the Anchorage Daily News, I'm from New York City. I come from a pretty fast place. Let me tell you, she made me feel like I was standing still. Oh, my God. <laughs> After quitting the modeling agency, Michelle moved briefly back to New Orleans, where she earned her GED and began dancing at a strip club to save some money for veterinary school. Michelle took a trip to Anchorage, Alaska, when she was like 20 or 21, just about there, with another dancer friend, and they found the last frontier to be full of opportunity. Because of the nature of the types of work that was available in Alaska in the 90s, which was primarily fishing, mining, and oil work, Anchorage was nearly two-thirds male. Whoa. Yeah. Suffice to say that there was a lot of lonely men willing to part with their money for the attention of a beautiful young woman. And oh man, did Michelle work it. She began to work as a dancer at a club called the Great Alaskan Bush Company. What? Which is pretty much one of the greatest strip club names I have ever heard in my life. So Almost immediately, Michelle became one of the top earners at the bush, as they called it. Now, we both know, Andy, that the big money is not made on the pole. Where is the big money made? Oh, I don't know. I thought it was the pole. What? Yeah. We've talked about this. We've had dancers on the show in the past. In the champagne room? Yes, like lap dances, essentially, champagne room. The big money is made from getting regulars, making conversation, yes. you know. Yeah. yeah. So this is what Michelle was really, really good at. She just had the gift of gab, and there was just this quality to her, like almost like she maintained this innocent girl next door quality, even while she was taking her clothes off, you know? Yep, which that would be such a turn on for dudes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I think she had. She had this like interesting combination of seductive and innocent. And they said that she had really didn't have like a typical like exotic dancer's body. Like they said that, you know, her breasts are maybe a little smaller than a lot of the women's and, you know, her like hips and legs were bigger or something. There's just something about her that just stood out. And it was like her imperfections made her more perfect somehow. Like they all came together into one like really interesting package. And they said that basically what she was the best at was she could make every guy feel so special. And she could have like five different regulars in the club and they could even see her like flirting with another regular and they'd be like, yeah, that's her working. But when she's with me, yeah, you know, it's yeah. for real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Michelle reportedly made between $1,000 and $3,000 a night at the club. What? Yeah. Adjusted for inflation, that would be like $1,900 to $5,600. That's crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Also, though, I feel like it makes sense, like, with the guys needing to, like, be okay with sharing her considering, like, the ratio. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I also read something really funny in the Michael Fleeman book. They talked about for women going to Alaska, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Oh, Meaning, my like, God. <laughs> yeah, the guys in Alaska were kind of weird. <laughs> no offense to you if you're listening in Alaska. It's just what author Michael Fleeman said. I do not take responsibility. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So yeah, Michelle was crushing it. And she was a little different too because she never, ever indulged in drugs or alcohol. Okay. Yeah. She later told 48 Hours, my goal was to make money and leave. And she was not going to get distracted from it until one day a customer walked into her life and she fell hook, line, and sinker for him. No way. Uh-huh. That's against the rules, Michelle. In August of 1994, Scott Hilke was a valve salesman who ended up in Anchorage for a work training program. So he said that he traveled constantly. He worked for like this like electrical type company that created special valves. Okay. And that he was supposed to go to Anchorage for a work training, but they had screwed up the dates and they bought him a plane ticket and told him to be there two weeks before the training actually was supposed to start. So when he got up there, they were like, well, just like kick it for two weeks until it starts. And so he had like nothing to do in Anchorage. So he ended up wandering into the Bush Company, which is where he met Michelle, who went by the stage name Bobby Joe. There was instant chemistry, which surprised some of Michelle's friends. She could have had any guy she wanted. And Scott was 17 years older than her. He was separated, but not even divorced yet. And he, you know, did a good living, but it still was like a kind of low to average salary, you know? Okay. So Michelle, for whatever reason, found him to be completely attractive, fun, and smart. And she just vibed with him right away. She would later say also that he had zero jealousy and had no problem with her profession, as well as the fact that he like actually just appreciated her hustle, you know? Okay. Another major perk was that because Scott was constantly traveling, he had major frequent flyer miles. So he was able to fly Michelle out to meet him in vacation spots all over the United States and beyond for free, often booking her first class. Uh, fancy. Yeah. Michelle bought a $64,000 fixer-upper home in Wasilla and moved in with a menagerie of pets that she had collected. She reportedly had dogs, cats, three cockatoos, a toucan, and even an African gray parrot. Whoa. That is a lot of pets. (laughs) So Scott stayed with Michelle for Thanksgiving 1994 and proposed to her with a $3,000 engagement ring in front of her pets. In front of her pets? (laughs) I know. It's usually like in front of somebody's family. I'm just imagining them all like lined up watching. (gasps) Oh my God, Dad. The two began planning a wedding for the following Thanksgiving, even booking a minister and made plans for a new future together in Alaska. Scott even quit his sales job to start his own Alaska-based business so he could spend more time at home with Michelle. But the company, after a little while, ended up failing pretty miserably and Scott was eventually forced to go work for an old boss and go on the road again. Was she still dancing at this time? Yes, at this time she's still dancing. Okay. But don't you worry about Michelle getting lonely. While this entire romance with Scott was happening, Michelle was also stringing along another man she had met at the club. Stop. Uh Uh-huh. Kent Lepink was a customer who had become a good friend at first. And then after only a month of seeing one another, had become Michelle's other fiance. What did her pets think about this? (laughs) I wonder if she had to like train the parrot not to, you know, rat on her. (laughs) Like she's with Kent and the parrot's like, oh, Scott. Oh, Scott, Scotty, oh, Scotty. Scotty. <laughs> yeah. 
So Ken was a 6'4", 190-something pound fisherman who gave every spare dollar and then some to Michelle. According to Michelle's friends and family, there was nothing romantic or sexual going on between the two. They believed that Kent was simply obsessed with Michelle and that the thousands of dollars that he gave her were just kind of like extensions of the tips that she received at the club. Okay, when that's my question is like at what point when you transition to like a relationship do you stop paying? I don't know. In this case, it never stopped. Okay. So this interpretation of the relationship that he was basically like a glorified regular was clearly not conveyed to Kent, who was telling his family that he had met the quote, most wonderful girl in the world and that the two were planning a wedding. All the while, within the same month, Michelle was accepting Scott's proposal and planning a wedding with him. This gets real messy, y'all. I was just going to say. Messy, messy, messy. So naturally, Kent's family had no idea that she was dating somebody else and engaged to somebody else. They also, at first, had no idea how Kent and Michelle had met. So at the beginning, his family was over the moon for him. They were so excited that he had found somebody. Kent had always been a bit odd. Some people found him off-putting, and he had never had a serious girlfriend in his 34 years. So his parents were absolutely delighted that their impulsive black sheep son had finally found a partner to love him. They were thrilled to fly up to Alaska in July of 1995 to finally meet this mystery woman. But they ended up disappointed when Michelle was clearly disinterested in the family dinner and barely tried to make polite conversation. Kent's mother, Betsy, could tell immediately that the pretty young woman did not share Kent's feelings. She didn't even come close. One of Kent's brothers recalled that Kent had bought Michelle a diamond pendant necklace, which he proudly presented to her at dinner, only to have Michelle reject the gift in front of his entire family, telling him she already had one. Oh my God. So rude. Even if you don't want to accept it, which you no one should be forced to accept a gift they don't want, but she should say like, oh, thank you. It's so lovely. And then afterwards be like, I'm so sorry. I can't accept this. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's just being polite. So they also noticed that Michelle wasn't wearing the engagement ring that Kent had bought her. And he explained that he was saving up for a larger one because, quote, Michelle didn't like small rings. Oh, my God. Kent's brother Ransom called it a huge red flag. And I would agree. Ransom on Team LM. Yes, exactly. Love, murder, red flag on the field. (laughs) So yeah, Betsy left dinner a little apprehensive, but still cautiously optimistic for her wayward son. Little did she know that she wouldn't see her so-called daughter-in-law-to-be for over a decade in person again, and then under very different circumstances. So let's go back and talk a little background on Kent, who was in his mid-30s when he met Michelle. So he had been born on September 6, 1959, in Lakeview, Michigan, the second of four brothers. And he grew up really outdoorsy. He loved hiking, canoeing, water skiing, and hunting. 
Kent attended Michigan State University before he transferred to Western Michigan College, where he studied retail management in order to take over the family business. Kent's parents owned a chain of grocery stores, and it was expected that Kent, hopefully with his brothers, would someday take over the company. After graduation, Kent worked up from the ground level, taking shifts in the baking and produce sections of Lepink's food centers. It wasn't exactly a good fit because Kent had an awkward sense of humor, which alienated some customers. Yeah, his his family just described him as very misunderstood. Like he was very shy and it seemed like he had like a little bit of social anxiety. And so when he did try to make jokes, they would come out like slightly sexual seeming that would put people off. Stop. But yeah, but everyone described this as like, mostly just harmless. It was just awkward, you know? In any case, the awkwardness was the least of his parents' problems with Kent's employment, unfortunately. In 1990, considerable amounts of money went missing from a store that Kent was working at, and it was discovered that Kent had been embezzling from his family's business. Yeah, to go right into the strip club. <laughs> it's true. I mean, he's in Michigan at this point. This, he's not at the bush yet, but maybe he was frequenting uh, the clubs in Michigan as well. They said he had embezzled maybe up to $200,000. Oh my God, that's so much money. That is an unfathomable amount of money. So the family chose not to involve the police. Kent was just forced to quit the store and forfeit his allotment of company shares, which was worth about a hundred grand at the time. Kent's older two brothers agreed with the punishment, but the youngest son, Lane, felt that the authorities should have been involved. And this ended up creating a resentment and a rift between the brothers that would never completely heal. Kent moved to Tennessee, where he became a taxidermist by profession and an avid hunter by hobby. In early 1993, he attended a safari club meeting in Reno. Safari club is a large hunting organization, and there he met a commercial fisherman named Russ Williams from Alaska, who would change his life forever by offering Kent a job. By April 1993, Kent had arrived in Alaska to begin his new life. He was also given a nickname by Russ that would stick, TT for Tennessee Taxidermist. Kent eventually buried the hatchet with his parents who came to visit and found their son thriving in Alaska. He finally had found a home when he came to Alaska, a family member said. He belonged up there. The senior Lepinks were so impressed with Kent's transformation that they ended up later helping him set up an LLC and lending him money to buy his own fishing boat and start his own business. So that's why when they heard about Michelle, they were just so excited. It finally seemed like everything in Kent's life was finally falling into place. Unfortunately, that was far from the truth. According to Seduced by Evil, Michelle was telling her friends that Kent was pathetic. Night after night, he went to the bush, giving her hundreds of dollars, then subjecting himself to any indignity Michelle could deliver. He cooked, he cleaned, he gave her money, he followed her around like a puppy, obsessed with her. By the summer of 1995, Kent's visits to Michelle's decreased because he was back on the water working his fishing tender. But a replacement waited in the wings. One night at the bush, Michelle introduced Scott to her new regular, an overweight, balding widower from New Jersey named John Carlin III, who lived with his teenage son in a South Anchorage house not far from the club. A former U.S. Marine and steel worker, John had suffered a bout of lead poisoning. 
He barely slept and his body would be plagued by pain because of the poisoning. But he was financially secure, having just received $800,000 out of a $1.2 million legal settlement. Whoa. Yeah. So he was flush for the first time in his life and very lonely after the loss of his wife. So John would often seek company at the strip club. The girls who worked there would say that he would often tell them to take his ATM card and go to the machine and get cash out for him. Okay. They said mostly because he wanted them to see how high his balance was because of the settlement money. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Yeah. But after a while, he only had eyes for one dancer, Bobby Joe, a.k.a. Michelle. Now, Scott was still under the impression that he was Michelle's one and only at this point, and he was getting increasingly perturbed with Michelle's new suitor, especially when Michelle asked Scott if he would watch her pets while she went on an all-expenses-paid European vacation with John and one of his friends. Oh, Yeah. And to put his mind at ease, she was like, oh, don't be jealous, honey. He's impotent because of the lead poisoning. So there's not gonna be any funny business anyway. So see ya. Make sure you feed the cuckoo. (laughs) That is exactly what she did. She totally peaced out on her supposed fiance for two weeks to go to Europe with her new regular. Oh my God. Yeah, Scott would later say that this was the beginning of the end of their official relationship. By the fall of 1995, Scott officially gave up on the business and Michelle for good, heading back to the lower 48 for work. He did still meet up with Michelle for sex every once in a while. Like they continued like, you know, kind of meeting around the country when she he flew her out to places. But he would say that at least he didn't have to, quote, see the two morons as he called Kent and John anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, she said that he was, like, down with her profession, but obviously there was a line, and she crossed it, you know? Probably all the time. Eventually, like, even him just coming to Alaska to see her, which he did sometimes, became, like, a non-starter because of a new living arrangement that occurred in the late fall of 1995, Michelle discovered extensive dry rot in her home while she was remodeling it and was forced to move in with John Carlin and his 17-year-old son, John Carlin IV. Whoa. Yeah. So just to make it clear, I'm going to call them John Sr. and John Jr. Easy. Even though they're technically the third and the fourth. But you guys, you guys will get it. To make matters even more bizarre, Kent moved in with them as well. Jessica. (laughs) This is such a weird situation. So young John adored Michelle. She was a young, vibrant woman who he regarded kind of like a fun older sister type. I mean, she's like 22, I think at this point. So she's only five years older than him. He thought Kent was a little odd though. There was like this aggressive like air hump that sometimes he would do to punctuate a joke that the teenager found off-putting. So John was like, yeah, I really like Michelle. I don't know about Kent, but he's okay, I guess. And according to the 17-year-old, Kent and Michelle had nothing approaching a romantic relationship. He would later say that it was clear that Kent worshipped Michelle and followed her around like a puppy, but she in turn treated him like a houseboy. 
So John Jr. did not know that Kent and Michelle were allegedly engaged and had, in fact, been told by Michelle and his father that they were engaged to be married. Wait, what? For those of you trying desperately to keep score at home, (laughs) this is now technically three fiancés at the same time, even though Scott's kind of on his way out. To break down the complicated timeline, she had actually gotten engaged to Kent first. Then two weeks later, Scott proposed to her on Thanksgiving in 1994. And then she was allegedly also proposed to by John Carlin several months later, sharing the happy news with young John just before Christmas 1995. Like, did all three rings fit on her finger? I think that she didn't wear any of them. She does eventually quit the club. I think, though, when she was actively engaged to all three, she was still working at the bush. And I imagine that she just was like, I can't wear the rings while I'm working. So that was her excuse for not wearing each man's engagement ring. And which one was most expensive? The only, oh, you know, I think maybe John's was. Okay. Because Scott's was 3,000, you said. Yeah. And we're going to talk about it later. But I think that John's was 11,000. Wow, that's an expensive ring. Yeah, and we heard earlier that Kent was saving up for a bigger ring, so I'm assuming that his was not up to snuff. It was a starter ring. It was a starter ring. So who knew what? Kent was completely in the dark. Well, John believed that Kent was somewhere between a mark for Michelle and a charity case. Michelle would go on to tell others that Kent was closeted, either gay or bisexual, and she was acting like his fiancé for his family who didn't know and wouldn't approve. But there was no proof of this anywhere. There was no proof that he had ever engaged in, you know, gay sex even or had a boyfriend or any, any of those things. For Scott, John knew that Michelle was sexually involved with Scott. It seems like he did maybe, John, have some impotence issues. So he communicated to Michelle in emails that they find later that kind of like Scott maybe gives you something that I can't, which, you know, reading between the lines, yeah. I don't know, maybe there yes. was something going on. But yeah, like I said, Kent was also totally in the dark about Scott. He thought that he was just a friend of Michelle's. And when Michelle would travel to rendezvous with Scott, she would simply disappear and not tell Kent where she'd been or who she'd been with. Good thing that Kent's hump in the air because it doesn't seem like he's going to be humping much much else, you know? No. And she had like really done a number on Kent where they like talked about saving it for marriage. Yeah. So she was like, it's just, this is such a beautiful relationship and we mean so much to each other. I think we should just wait till we're married. Oh my God. I know. Yeah. So yeah, this is not exactly a healthy, affianced relationship here. So Ken was sending mixed signals to his parents about wedding planning at this time. On one hand, he confided in his mother that Michelle often pulled a disappearing act and he was unsure of their future if she decided to keep just leaving and not telling him where she was, who she was with, or when she'd be back. But then literally the next day, he'd call his mom and be like, oh, she came home, the wedding's back on, don't worry, mom, and also can I have some money so I can buy her a wedding dress? Yeah, he's trying to shotgun that wedding as soon as possible so that they can get it on. Absolutely. (laughs) So the Leppings became even more concerned when a depressed Kent met them in Florida of April of 1996. 
They said that he wasn't sleeping. He seemed to have lost a considerable amount of weight. And at the time, Michelle was allegedly visiting her mother in New Orleans. So Kent was begging her to come down to Florida to stay with him and get to see his vacationing family. Kent even had his mother email Michelle to invite her to Florida herself because she was not responding to Kent's messages. So Michelle did finally respond to Betsy's email, and she said that all of the airlines were booked up. So oops, too bad. She wouldn't make it. And then she asked for clarification on what the Leppings were willing to contribute financially to their upcoming wedding. Wow. Brass ball. Wow. I always wonder what it would be like to be that type of person. It's so crazy. There's no amount of money in the world that could get me to overcome the mortification of being that person. (laughs) (laughs) So true. After the vacation was over and the Leppings had returned to Michigan, Betsy spoke to Michelle over the phone. And this time, Michelle told Betsy that she hadn't been able to find a wedding dress she liked in Alaska. So she was having one custom made in New Orleans. Since Kent had said that his parents had paid for all of his sister-in-law's wedding dresses, she was hoping to get a check for $2,600 for the dress. Stop it. Betsy was flabbergasted. First of all, his dad was like, $2,600 is more than literally all three of your sister-in-law's dresses put together. Secondly, no, we're going to give you guys- Yeah, we're going to give you guys $2,500 for the entire wedding. But Betsy at this point was very gently like, hey, look, when we were in Florida together, Kent told us how bad his financial situation was because Kent had taken the money that he was supposed to put into his business and instead paid $50,000 for Michelle's home repairs a house that he is not on the deed and has no ownership of. Oh, my God. And, you know, he told his parents this. He was very honest with them about it because he said, well, it's going to be our home because she's going to be my wife and it makes sense that I would contribute to our marital home. Naturally, his parents were very worried. And at this point, his dad decided to fly up to Alaska to have like a stern financial conversation with a couple about what was going on and what their plans were because at this point also Michelle had quit her job so she wasn't working as well. Two questions. Do they know that she is an exotic dancer? Yes. So it eventually came out that that's how they had met but that she wasn't dancing anymore and that she had only been doing it to save money for veterinary school which she still wanted to attend at this point. Okay. And then two, it's like, this is your son who also has like already been in trouble for embezzling $200,000. So like, I don't know. It's like, I don't know why they would think that giving him $50,000 is going to turn out good. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it seemed like if he did truly embezzle $200,000, where did it go? How do you even spend that much money that fast? Where did it go? And like, I don't know. It's just like handing him another 50K. Like there's no, without any sort of Guidance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I think they were discovering now. So Kenneth, who is Kent's father, decided to fly up to Alaska to talk to them. Meanwhile, Betsy told Michelle she thought it was a good idea if they postponed the wedding for now just while they figured out their finances, which is a very wise idea. Yeah, Michelle's like, fine, because we're not... (laughs) Because we're not going to get married anyways, and we're never having sex. So sure, let's postpone it. Which she did. She was like, that seems like a good idea. Let's just postpone it, Betsy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're so smart. 
Yeah. So when Kenneth flew up to Alaska, he was supposed to be meeting with Michelle and Kent because he was supposed to be talking about their financial future and, you know, figuring out both of their assets and how they were going to come together and how they were going to get, you know, Kent's fishing business back online. And Michelle completely ghosted them. Kenneth was there for four days and she just disappeared. Kent had no idea where she was. So at one point during his father's visit, he called his mother and he told his mother that he thought that Michelle had gone to Hope, Alaska. Okay. From the Lepping's perspective, Kent's romantic situation kept getting more and more concerning. So here's an exchange that happened during this phone conversation as reported by Michael Fleeman in his book, Seduced by Evil. Betsy asked Kent if he had ever been to Hope. He said that he had not. She said, well, your dad and I have. We were there in 93, and it's just a little village. There's nothing there. I mean, where would she even be staying in Hope? Kent said that she was supposedly in a cabin. What's more, he claimed that she had stolen his laptop and an expensive bronze statue. Huh, I don't believe that, Betsy said. She told him that there was no cabins in Hope that they had seen, no hotel or lodge that she remembered. Oh, my God. Yeah, she's like, what the fuck? (laughs) Well, I have reason to believe that that's where she is. And that's where I'm going to go look for her, Kent told his mother. I'm just calling to tell you where I'm going. The conversation then went from shocking to bizarre. Oh, by the way, Kent said almost casually, we have our first wedding gift. Betsy was taken aback. Kent and Michelle hadn't even set a wedding date yet. And from her last conversation with Michelle, it had sounded like it might be postponed until the fall. You do? Betsy asked. Yes, said Kent. Michelle's grandfather bought a million-dollar life insurance policy on my life. (laughs) The red flaggiest red flag of all. Do you ever think about how many lives we could be saving? We're really doing God's work here. Yeah. Yup. Betsy Lepink was stunned. Kent was making no sense. What are you saying? He repeated it. Michelle's grandfather had insured Kent's life for $1 million as a wedding gift. Oh my God. Kent, that's sick, his mother said. That's absolutely sick. I've never heard of such a thing in all my life. And now you're going to hope where she can't possibly be. Yes, he said, that's where she was. And that's where he was going to go look for her. Don't go, she said. Don't, at least don't go alone and just get out of there. He refused. They ended their call and Kent continued on his way. That night, to his mother's great relief, Kent returned to the motel where his father was staying. Kent laid it out for him. Michelle was in hope with a friend. Kent couldn't find her, but he suspected that his friend, John Carlin III, knew where Michelle was, only he wasn't saying. In the motel room, Kent told his father about the $1 million insurance policy wedding gift. Nobody gives a life insurance policy for a wedding present, his father said, overcome (laughs) now with a combination of fear and that old feeling that his son had gotten himself into trouble again. This is dangerous, Kenneth said. I'm a big boy, Kent said. I can handle myself. I don't think so. If you ever have to call yourself a big boy, I don't think you're in the position. At 36 years old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just don't even know what his parents are supposed to do. Like, like I said, he's 36 years old. You have to, you mean, you should probably stop giving him money. Number Uh, one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But number two, they can't really get involved in his love life. I mean, he's a grown man, you know? On Tuesday, April 30th, Kent's father boarded a plane to head back to Michigan. In the four days that he had been in Alaska, he hadn't seen his son's fiance even once. 
Wow. A couple hours later, Kent talked on the phone with his brother, Craig, who had called him because he had heard about the life insurance policy and he was really, really worried about Kent and told him that he needed to get away from Michelle and get out of this situation. I mean, they all seem smart. Yeah. And Kent even admitted that he was in over his head. Craig said very gently, look, there are other fish in the ocean. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's okay. There are other ladies out there. And Craig later said that Kent paused and then he said, no, I really love her. I mean, I just really love this lady. This phone conversation would be the last time that Craig would ever hear his brother's voice. Question, though, because they'd have to get married for a life insurance policy to work. No, they don't. Her- you can name anyone as a beneficiary of your life insurance policy. You don't have to be married. And does Michelle actually have a grandfather? I don't know if she actually has a grandfather, but I can tell you that he wasn't the one paying for the uh, policy. <sighs> <laughs> On May 2nd, 1996, at just about 10.15 a.m., with the temperature hitting a high of 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and in May, two electric company workers came upon a man lying on the Hope Spur Road, known to some as the Road to Nowhere. Immediately, they called 911, and the state troopers came out to the desolate scene in Tiny Hope, Alaska, at 12.45 p.m. that same day. It was immediately clear to the troopers that the tall, lanky man in his 30s had been shot at least twice, once to the face and once to the belly. They found three shell casings at the scene, indicating that the murderer had used a semi-automatic pistol. The body was just beginning to display signs of rigor mortis. There was also indistinct footprints in the icy mud, which indicated the man had been murdered in the afternoon or the early evening when the ground was thawed enough to be muddy. One of the troopers on the scene happened to be an instructor at the firing range and noted that the 44 shell casings had come from a pistol and he only knew one firearm in the entire world that fit that description. It was the Desert Eagle. Oh. And Nathaniel's ah. not a big, yeah, that's a good eagle. <laughs> Nathaniel's not a big gun guy at all. Like we you know, don't have any firearms. But when I said Desert Eagle, he's like, oh man. When he was really into fishing when he was younger, he said that they used to go to this like fishing and ammo store in Maine. And there was like on display this Desert Eagle gun. And it's a handgun, but it's gigantic, he said. It's like a hand cannon, essentially. It's supposedly very rare. It's manufactured in Israel, but sold in the States. And it's really, really deadly. I mean, this thing is four pounds when loaded and reportedly powerful enough to bring down a charging bear in one shot. That's insane. Yeah. Meanwhile, the other troopers searched the man's pockets and they put a name to their John Doe. It was indeed Kent Lepping. Poor Kent. Jesse, you know that behind the scenes, one of the most frequent guest stars on the podcast is Quincy. That cat is truly your first child. He really is. But as much as I love my cat, I'm really not fond of the stink bombs they leave in their litter box. Everything from cleaning to covering up the smell, it's a constant battle. And that's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture. 
resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that does not smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Less dust and no fuss. Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Now that I get my litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store. And the shipping is free. But above all else, here's why Pretty Litter is a pet parent's hero. It's a health indicator. That's right. Pretty Litter monitors Quincy's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. Get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code LOVEMURDER for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code LOVEMURDER for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code LOVEMURDER. Want to hear something that's truly gruesome? Nine out of 10 Americans suffer from some type of gut issue. Gas, bloating, diarrhea, acid reflux. They're so common that most people think it's a normal part of life. But with 80% of your immune system living in your gut, any gut problem can make it harder for your body to keep you healthy. And these days, the last thing any of us wants is to get sick. For sure. Probiotics are supposed to be an easy way to support your gut and immune system. But according to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they get where they're needed. This is what makes Just Thrive Probiotics so revolutionary. Their proprietary formula is designed by nature to protect itself when conditions get rough. In fact, studies have proven that Just Thrive Probiotic arrives 100% alive in your gut, making them uniquely effective at controlling gas, constipation, and bloating, and providing much-needed immune support. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO and safe for just about anyone at any age, including kids and moms-to-be. Plus, it's been loudly endorsed by some of the biggest health luminaries on the planet. So, if you're looking to give your body the crucial immune and digestive support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, there's nothing like the award-winning Just Thrive Probiotic. Get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code LOVEMURDER at checkout. Andy, after a long day, I just want to cuddle up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with some characters that I can love or loathe. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. Thanks to Sundance Now, I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can become obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series A Discovery of Witches. It's the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. Seasons one and two are streaming now, and season three, the final season, started January 8th. A Discovery of Witches is one of my favorite fiction series of the last decade. When I heard they were making a TV version, I was thrilled. And oh man, does this show deliver. It's one of the most exciting, genre-bending, time-hopping shows on TV, and I cannot wait for this last season. You can stream Sundance Now on all of your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. 
Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code LOVEMURDER. That's SundanceNow.com, code LOVEMURDER for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com, code LOVEMURDER. Ken's pockets were just bursting with very interesting paperwork. He had a checkbook that showed a checking account in Kent and Michelle Hughes's names with a Wasilla address. There was also a New York Life Insurance Company change of beneficiary form. Kent had just changed the beneficiary of his life insurance policy from Michelle to his parents. What? Mm-hmm. So she wasn't going to get a dime. For some reason, Kent also had a business card and a luggage tag for Scott Hilke in his pockets, as well as a piece of paper with the name Pat Gigante on it. Okay, so this is like a detective's gold mine. Yeah, it's literally like all of Michelle's lover's information <laughs> and the motive for the murder, the life insurance policy, all just right there in his pockets. That's amazing. It's wild. So there there was a theory that he was going to hope to look for Michelle. And it seemed like maybe he had all of this documentation in his pockets to confront her with the fact that she was still seeing Scott, that he had changed the life insurance policy. Like he was going to be like, see, look what I did, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's when he was killed. He did also have an email printed out that was from Michelle. And it read, I think it's finally working, but I'm not sure. So let me know if you get this, okay? I've got the rug, so don't worry. I was going to have them cleaned, but something came up. It was going to be a surprise. Now, this was apparently in response to Kent accusing Michelle of stealing some Oriental rugs, the trophy, and his laptop computer. Okay. Michelle went on to request that $3,200 be put into a banking account with an explanation to follow when she got back that night or in the morning. The email ended on a sour note with Michelle apologizing for just leaving like that, but saying that she couldn't find you anywhere since the person had left no messages. I drove out to the valley and you were not there. I was a little pissed off, she wrote. Well, still don't know where you are, and I think it's rather immature when you pull these stunts. There was a postscript with an even angrier tone with Michelle saying she did not mess up the computer she borrowed. I know you were smoking pot, taking those pills and drinking, Michelle wrote. If you were trying to piss me off, it worked. But you hurt me more because you damaged the agreement we had about drugs and hurt our trust. I do not want to talk about it again. The troopers headed over to Michelle's Wasilla address found on the checkbook and arrived to find Michelle and both John Sr. and Jr. Seemingly going through Kent's belongings and moving oh some of his things into a storage shed. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, this immediately struck them as odd because they didn't even know that Kent was dead or they weren't supposed to know that Kent was nope. dead. So also the troopers are trying to figure out what everyone's relationship is. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what everyone's relationship is here. <laughs> They requested an interview with Michelle and they recorded that conversation. She explained that she was Kent's fiance, but that they had an unconventional relationship. When the trooper asked if she meant an open relationship, she said that actually they weren't physically involved at all. That in fact, Kent was gay, though she really didn't want his family to find out. Oh, she's just a savior. Mm-hmm. She volunteered the information that she had a real boyfriend named Scott Hilke and told them that John Carlin 
was just a friend and roommate. She does have like a real like baby voice too. Like on the recording, she's like, well, we had an unconventional relationship. And yeah, I mean, he's gay or bisexual, but I just, his family doesn't know. And I really don't want them to know. It's like kind of like breathy and high, you know? Marilyn a little bit. Yeah, a little. She's got a little bit of that going on. So at one point she finally asks, where is Kent? What's going on? And the trooper told her the sad news that Kent was dead. And you can hear her cry on the recording. And it sounds, you know, fairly convincing. It sounds pretty authentic. But right after, she just keeps talking to the troopers and never asks what happened. How did he die? Like every loved one ever who's told that your fiance or friend or whatever is dead. Your first question is going to be how? Unless they're like 99 years old. Of course, you're going to be like how? And so they immediately noted that she didn't ask how he died, which was very odd. And one of the other detectives wrote a note from their original interview that he could detect a lack of sincerity about Michelle and her feelings. So Michelle's alibi was that she had been in Tahoe with Scott and that she had just gotten home. The autopsy showed that Kent had been shot point blank in the right cheek as well as the stomach and back. So it had actually been three shots, hence the three shell casings. The wounds confirmed the use of a large caliber bullet, exactly the type used in a Desert Eagle. There were no defensive wounds, which indicated that the killer had known Kent or Kent felt comfortable with the killer. And it looked like he had been kind of like lured out to this road and then shot in the back. The gunshot caused him to kind of spin around from the force of the first shot in the back. Then the assailant shot him again in the stomach and he went down and he was already, because these are huge bullets, bleeding out profusely. And then the killer stood above him and shot him in the face. Okay. Because Alaska is so wickedly cold, especially overnight, it was difficult to ascertain when exactly Kent had been killed because he was so well-preserved. Yeah. So they believe that it was sometime from Tuesday, April 30th, like nighttime, which is the same day that he dropped his dad off at the airport and talked to his brother on the phone to maybe the following day, which was Wednesday, May 1st, around 4 to 5 p.m. So that's a pretty big window. I mean, that's an almost 24-hour window. Yeah, but I wonder when he changed the beneficiary. We're going to get into that later. But he did end up changing it on April 26th. It seemed like when his dad was in town and he couldn't find Michelle. Okay. The detectives went to Anchorage to interview John Carlin Sr., and he consented to a search of his home. The detectives found an empty gun case and gun belt exactly the right size and shape for a Desert Eagle. But they didn't find a gun. So John claimed that he had the gun case because he had had a gun that used to go there, but it was stolen back in New Jersey. So he no longer had it. Now, this is really fishy because he also said that he didn't know if it was a Desert Eagle. And Nathaniel assured me, if you have a Desert Eagle, you know you have a Desert Eagle. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, if I have a Gucci purse, I'm going to be like, it's a Gucci purse. I'm not going to be like, it's my purse. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Also, like, aren't you legally supposed to know? (laughs) 
I think so. I don't think it was. I, I think he bought it illegally, honestly. So in any case, also, I don't know why you would keep a gun case for a gun, like, and move with it after it's been stolen, you know? Yeah, all of it it's sounds. all sorts of fishy. So Kent's car was also parked in front of John's house, so they were able to search that as well. And there they found a note in Kent's car. So Kent had clearly read it. That was from a John, you would assume it was John Carlin, to Michelle. And in it, he said that the roof on her cabin in Hope was finished and that he was glad that he had bought the little getaway for her. He wrote, I do hate losing you in my life, though. Please be well, safe and happy. You guys enjoy your stay in the cabin this weekend. Underneath in Michelle's handwriting, she wrote, please don't let anyone know where we are. But you already know that. Smiley face, Michelle. Wow. So they asked John Carlin and he said that he didn't have a cabin in Hope at all. And that they didn't want Kent to know where Michelle was and that she was with Scott. Which kind of goes against them saying that Michelle was just his beard. If he was gay and just like it was like a fake relationship, why would he care that Michelle was in Tahoe with, with Scott. Scott. Yeah. yeah. So the detectives went back to Hope and they ended up canvassing the area to see if anyone had seen Kent around. And there was a little cafe that was only open on weekends that said, yes, I recognize that guy. He was in here last weekend. He was showing a picture of a blonde woman to people and asking them if they had seen her. So, Whoa. yep. And so then they showed her a picture of Michelle and she was like, yep, that's exactly the woman that he was looking for then. And it seems like that was the day that he told his mother that he was going up to look for her. Okay. So deputies called Kent's brother Ransom, who relayed the devastating news to his parents. The Lepinks wanted to talk to investigators immediately. Only the day before they found out that their son was dead they had received a bizarre package from him. Oh my God. Yep. And so they now realized that when they received that package, Kent had already been murdered. So this was essentially mail from beyond the grave. Yep. Let's talk about what was in that package. So they opened the first part of the package the day before they found out the news. There was a letter that was said basically like, open me now. And then there was another sealed letter that said, open me later, essentially. The letter was addressed to KL, which was the initials of Kent's father, and Chets, which was his mother's nickname. Thanks for coming up. Sorry, Michelle couldn't be here to see you. Please put the enclosed envelope in your safe deposit box. Do not open it. I talked to you about insurance policies. Well, this is mine. If I didn't think that things could be a little rough up here, I wouldn't have sent it to you. It'll be safer there. It's not funny to talk about getting killed, but in today's world, you have to expect anything. Don't get all nervous and call me on the phone about this. KL and I already talked about it. If you think anything fishy has happened to me, then you can open the other envelope I've sent. It's oh, pretty self-explanatory. Oh my God. Can you believe it? How can you write this and then still go look for her? And still want to be in this relationship when you're oh, fearing for your God. life. 
You don't have to worry about me. I'll be okay. Just want to make sure all my ducks are in a row. By the time you get this, I'll have called you. The phone call will explain everything. Love, Kent. So obviously Kent's family was already worried about the life insurance policy, his relationship with Michelle. Like they had a bad gut feeling that he was getting himself into some deep, deep, deep trouble. And now, of course, their anxiety is even heightened by this letter. And Betsy starts trying to call Kent, but he's not answering. So, I mean, of course, he was already murdered. Wow. <sighs> he's not even the- getting any ass in this either. I know. Poor it's Kent. It's like so sad. So they decided that they would wait one night before they opened the second envelope. Like if he didn't call back, they were just going to open the second envelope. Yeah, I would have like opened it immediately. And then the very next morning, they got the news at like 530 in the morning. Their son came over to tell them what had happened. So immediately they went and tore open the second envelope. Yep. In it, Kent wrote... Since you're reading this, you assume that I'm dead. Don't dwell on that. It was my time, and there's nothing that can change that. There are a few things that I would like you to do for me, though. I hate to be vindictive in my death, but paybacks are hell. In what Kent intended to be a letter from the grave, he asked his parents to cover his debts with his life insurance money, give his boat to his friend Gary Brooks, and then go on a nice vacation and act like I'm there with you. Do the things that I would like to do. Lie on the beach, fish, relax. Two weeks minimum, but not much longer. Then he said, use the information enclosed to take Michelle down. Capital letters down. Oh my God, I have goosebumps. Make sure she is prosecuted. Michelle, John, or Scott were the people or persons that probably killed me. Make sure they get burned. Whoa. She's getting snitched on by a ghost right now. He apologized for asking this of his parents. And if Michelle had married him, then this wouldn't have been necessary. Instead, he asked his parents to ensure that Michelle is jailed for a long time. But he added, visit her there. Tell her how much I really did do love her. Tell her that you love her and help her. She has a split personality. And the part I fell in love with is very beautiful. I really did want to marry her and make her dreams come true. He signed it. Love ya, Kent. Whoa. Oh, his poor parents. I know. Kent's family faxed it along with copies of the other papers to investigator Stephen DeHart, who recalled the crime scene evidence. Kent had also been carrying a receipt from the post office dated April 30th at 2.29 p.m. Oh, my God. So the potentially the day he was killed. Yep. He had mailed the letter just two hours after his brother had told him he had a target on his back and just days after his fruitless search for Michelle and Hope, led there by a note that she and John Carlin had wrote. Take Michelle down, he had said. Whoa. Whoa, for real. Kent's parents also told the detectives that Kent had been very upset about Michelle stealing his computer and a trophy, and they believed that the computer might have some evidence on it if they could find it. Okay. So the police at this point questioned Michelle again and asked about specifically the laptop, and she claimed that it was hers and Kent's and that they shared it, so she hadn't stolen anything. And she said that actually it had frozen because of some antivirus software she had tried to install on it and that her sister was something of a computer whiz. So she had actually sent the computer to her sister in Utah. 
Yep, to get Eat. completely erased. Uh-huh. <laughs> they also pushed on John Carlin Sr. to clarify his relationship with Michelle, but he maintained that they were just roommates and friends as well. The detectives did feel like John was pretty straightforward and not lying to them. So they kind of trusted him at that point. But they did think it was odd that he would not allow them to interview his 17-year-old son at all. I was just going to ask, is he still there? He's still there. He still lives in the home. So they were trying to get an interview. And he's like, if I can sit in on it, I will. But you can't like interview him alone. And I really don't want you talking to him at all. I mean, he is a minor. He is still a minor. Mm -hmm. And that was John's right. So Kent's murder had hit the papers by now, and an attorney called the police. His name was Brian Brunden, and he had been Kent's attorney. So Brian had set up an LLC for Kent's fishing business, and he had also done Kent's will. On April 18th, 1996, Kent had brought Michelle in, and together they had changed his will to give everything to Michelle in the event of his death. So she would inherit his fishing business and all of his assets. So this was pretty like run of the mill. But why the event stuck out in his head was because then the two got into a very bizarre argument right in front of him and he didn't even know how it started. So they start fighting in front of him and Michelle accused Kent of being gay and suggested that he was having an affair with a man in front of this attorney. She said, I could compete if it was a girl, but I can't compete with a man for you. And Kent seemed baffled. He fought back, denying her accusations. And the two eventually left the office still fighting. Okay. Is she just like painting her alibi then of the whole gay thing? That was kind of what the attorney was thinking later. That's why he went to the police. Like it was just was a very weird argument that you would have in front of somebody to have a witness to it, you know? Yep. Yep. Exactly. And there was more though. Kent returned the very next day. And he said at this point that he wanted to change his will back. And he was like in a really off mood. And he was telling the attorney that he thought that his fiance was having an affair with his friend, John Carlin, whom they lived with. And he was really distraught about it, which is why he wanted to change his will back to his parents. Yep. Okay. So the lawyer was like, you guys are really messy. I just got to tell you, this seems like a bad situation. And he's like, let me give you a little bit of advice, but it's not legal. Instead, he told Kent the parable of the turtle and the scorpion. Have you oh, heard I this, know this story? This is yep. one of Dan's favorites. It is. It's such a good parable. Yeah. Uh, essentially, guys, what happens is that a turtle is about to swim across a stream. And a scorpion comes over and says, hey, can I hitch a ride on your back so I get across the stream as well? And the turtle says, no, absolutely not. You're definitely going to sting me and then I'll die. And the scorpion says, why would I do that? If you sink, I sink and I die too. It would be counter to all of my interests to sting you. So I definitely will not. So the turtle's like, okay, that's a good point. Hop on, let's go. So when the turtle gets to the middle of the stream, the scorpion stings him and they both sink to their deaths. As they're drowning, the turtle says, what did you do? Why would you do this to us? The scorpion just said, it's my nature. 
is exactly how Dan tells it, like to a T. <laughs> Nate and I are a little alike, and you yes. and Nathaniel are a little alike. Yes. <laughs> so the point that the attorney was trying to make was your fiance is a scorpion and she's going to sting you. And it's in her nature. It's in her nature. So, yeah, Brian said that he didn't hear from Kent for another week. And then he went back and he complained to him. Did Kent pick up what Brian was putting down? He did, but he didn't want to. You know, it was one of those things. It's like, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. So he went back a week later and he told the attorney at this point that Michelle was gone and that she had stolen some oriental rugs, his computer, and a statue that was worth $4,000 that he had kept in a storage area. So he told the attorney that he had just changed his life insurance beneficiary to his parents, and it was not Michelle. And he was just confirming that his will was absolutely already changed, like it had gone through, it was notarized, etc. And the lawyer was like, yes, absolutely. In Alaska, you can actually just rip up the new will and it reverts no, back to the old will. so crazy how every state is different. Yes, exactly. So he's like, yep, it's confirmed. So at that point, I think that the attorney was thinking like, you know, maybe everything's going to be fine. Maybe he's actually going to dump this woman and he's going to get out, you know? And now the attorneys are realizing that that's what was going on in that email that he had printed out. It was about the computer and the rugs, et cetera. And so this all happened. All of this happened on Friday, April 26th, and that's when Michelle had sent this email to him. This is when he changed the life insurance policy. This is when he made sure that his will was changed, and it was also the day that Kent's father had arrived to help him with his books, and it may also have been the same day that Kent had found the note from John and Michelle about Hope, Alaska. And Friday was also the day that Michelle claimed that she had already been in Lake Tahoe with Scott Hilke at this point. So it seems like she arrived there and then she came home right around the time that Kent was murdered. Pretty convenient. So the investigators also checked with New York Life, who indicated that indeed Kent had changed the beneficiary, but also Michelle had been very, very hot to make sure that the policy was active, even dropping off a check in person at the office and confirming that it would go active. Girl, you're coming off as real thirsty. Mm hmm They subpoenaed Kent's bank records and discovered that he had recently paid for some really expensive cabinets for Michelle. It was like $4,300 cabinets as well as lots and lots of charges at a local jewelry store. And the jeweler, when she was interviewed, knew exactly who Kent and Michelle were and said that they were often in the store. Kent had bought a lot of things for Michelle, and she very much thought they were a couple because she said that Michelle was always, like, hanging all over Kent, like, holding his hand, putting her arms around him. She said that it was totally weird, though, because in September 1995, Kent had come in and he had looked at an $11,000 diamond and he told the jeweler that it was for Michelle, but he said he couldn't buy it yet. And she was like, well, I can't hold it for you. So, you know, come back soon. And then two days later, John Carlin came into the store and bought it and indicated it was also for Michelle from him. <laughs> the jeweler's like, um, what is going on? 
Yeah. And then just days before the murder, the jeweler had sold Kent and Michelle a chain and a bracelet. So she's like, okay, now they're back together, I guess. And so she had no idea what was going on. And she was like, they're involved in something weird. You know, we obviously don't tattle on people as long as they're buying jewelry. It's fine. Have a million boyfriends, you know? Yeah. That's so crazy. Also, according to Kent's bank records, he had spent all of the money his dad had loaned him to start his fishing business on Michelle. When he died, he had been down to his last $600 and was drowning in debt. She bled that damn man dry and then killed him. So that's what the detectives are thinking at this point. But they have no murder weapon. They have no eyewitnesses, they have no forensic evidence, and they have no confession. So they have nothing. Yeah, it's just a lot of circumstantial evidence and some seriously sketchy people. Oh my God, so frustrating. It's so frustrating. There's nothing they could do except for, you know, keep investigating, keep interviewing people and try to find that laptop, try to get it from Utah to see if they can get anything from it. And there was nothing they could do when John, John Jr. and Michelle left Alaska for good and just kept on living their lives. Wow. I mean, they haven't been charged with a crime. There was nothing that they could do to keep him there. So what happened was John and Michelle sold their houses and they bought an RV. And the RV was bought collectively. And Michelle drove the RV with John Jr., And she told John Sr. when he was finished, like, cleaning everything up and and settling, like, his house being sold to meet them in Louisiana. But before they went to Louisiana, Michelle and John Jr. stopped in Utah to pick up the computer. On June 26, Michelle's sister, Melissa, called the Alaskan authorities and told them that Michelle and John Jr. had stopped in Utah. And then Michelle had demanded that Melissa reformat the computer and make sure that it was completely wiped clean. She said she wanted it like new. Now, Melissa said that she got an intensely bad feeling in her gut and she refused to do it. So she said, no, I'm not going to do that for you. This is really sketchy. And the fight ended up turning into a conversation about the murder. Okay. And Melissa was really surprised when Michelle told her that people like T.T., Kent, who hunted and stuffed animals, pretty much deserved to be killed. So she didn't feel bad at all. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. This is from uh, Seduced by Evil. Michael Fleeman wrote... That stunned Melissa listened to her sister rant against a dead man. She said that it was too bad that someone didn't torture him first. She was sitting at the picnic table and she slammed her hands down on the table. The words were quite strong for me to hear, Melissa said. The teenager with Michelle also shared her low opinion of Kent, expressing no concern over his death. I remember him saying that no one had liked T.T. anyway. Whoa. Whoa. So because Melissa tipped them off and said that they're going to New Orleans, when the RV landed in Louisiana, the police were there waiting to seize the laptop. The Alaskan detectives flew down to New Orleans to collect it, 
But this was the 90s and computer forensic technology was just not nearly as advanced as it is now. Somehow Michelle herself had pretty much wiped the hard drive and the detectives could not recover it. Michelle had demanded the computer be returned to her, but very wisely they kept it in their custody and it would prove to be very useful years down the line. Okay. So they kept working the case in Alaska, even finding a fourth guy named Brett Riddell who thought he was Michelle's boyfriend. He told the police that he thought he was her one and only boyfriend. How did she do it? I do not know. Speaking, I mean, we heard about how as a mother, she had time for all those things. I mean, as an exotic dancer, she had time for a lot of guys. Wow. So this fourth guy said that he was completely sure that they were in a committed relationship. He had loaned her $9,000 and given her use of his truck. And she had ghosted him and stolen his truck. Of course. Yeah. So the truck was later found in New Jersey. Apparently, John Carlin drove it to New Jersey, which is where he lived after he picked up his son in New Orleans. Okay. A dancer friend from the bush told detectives that Michelle had laughed about how much she used and abused Kent. Oh, my God. That's gross. I know. It's really gross. Ugh. Get better friends. She would take his money, make him do chores, and then ridicule him behind his back. Laura said that one night they had gone out to a restaurant. Apparently, her husband was a chef at this restaurant, so they went out and they had comped a bunch of stuff, but it still ended up being like $200 because everyone had had some like beer and wine and drinks as well. Okay. And I guess that nobody was expecting them to get a check because her husband was a chef or something. So Michelle called Kent, who was not invited to the dinner, and told him he had to come and show up and pay the bill. And he literally just came and took out his credit card and then paid the bill and then left again. Oh, my God. Ugh, poor Kent. So she also talked about how she and Michelle had watched a movie called The Last Seduction, which starred Linda Fiorentino. In it, Fiorentino plays a beautiful woman named Bridget who manipulates her lover into killing her husband for money and then walks away totally scot-free with the cash, leaving her lover to take the fall. According to Laura, Michelle said when they were watching this movie, oh my gosh, I love her. I want to be just like her. Of course she does. Mm -hmm. Which I watched like two thirds of this movie because <laughs> I wanted to see if it was relevant at all. And it's an okay movie. It had a shockingly good like Rotten Tomatoes score. It was only okay. And Linda Fiorentino is like very seductive evil in it. Like... It's pretty wild, but she's so unlikable. I can't imagine anybody watching it and being like, yeah, I want to be like her, you know? <laughs> Except another psycho. Another, yeah, sociopath. They also interviewed Scott Hilke a ton, but he had an ironclad alibi and he wasn't anywhere near Alaska when Kent was shot. Okay. So just like that, the case went totally cold which I feel like there's an Alaska pun in there that I'm missing somewhere, but you get the point. I think it's just that the case went cold. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. 
It went Alaska cold. (laughs) In early 1997, Michelle enrolled in Loyola University in New Orleans. One day while she was out jogging with her dogs, she met a young, handsome medical school student who was also jogging with his dog. His name was Colin Linehan. Colin and Michelle hit it off immediately. The two had a lot in common. They both loved animals and physical fitness, of course. They had both lived in Anchorage for a little while, and both of their fathers had died at fairly young ages. Okay. Colin's doctor father had passed away when he was 15, and the loss had inspired him to pursue medicine. Unfortunately, it had resulted in his family going from pretty decently upper middle class to totally broke. His mother, Judy, worked as a nurse, but he had five siblings. There were six kids total. Oh, my God. It's really, really hard as a single mother to make your salary stretch to feed all of those children, you know? Yeah, that's six people. Yeah, six people is a lot. So Colin had grown up fast. He ended up working 40 hours a week throughout high school and undergraduate. How is that possible? I have no idea. But people do it all the time. Like people work basically two full-time jobs, you know? I guess if you go from high school and then you work like an eight-hour shift at like a Taco Bell or something, you know? Yeah, it's crazy though. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he had worked so much that he actually ended up joining the Army Reserves. And the Army Reserves told him if he promised to go active duty after medical school and be an Army doctor, that they would pay for his medical school. That's amazing. So he's incredible. (laughs) He's incredible. He's a wonderful guy. And he was totally struck by Michelle. I mean, it was almost love at first sight. He was into her for her beauty, but he would later say that her inner beauty was even more of a draw for him. He loved how much she loved animals. He loved that she was also self-sufficient and that she had worked to be able to pay for her college degree all by herself with no help from her mother as well. And I think it was around this conversation that she did tell him that she used to be an exotic dancer because she had to explain how she had gotten so much money in such a short period to be able to pay for college. Yeah, because he's like, I worked 40 hours a week since high school. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he was like totally cool with it. He was like, absolutely, you know, you had to do what you had to do and was like, that's your past and you don't have to do that again if you don't want to, of course, you know? Less than a year into dating, Colin proposed marriage and the couple was married on May 31st, 1998, one day after Colin graduated from medical school. I like how she like made sure he was going to be a doctor before she married him. Like, let's get that graduation first. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It's really funny too, because all of these people who support Michelle are like, there's no way she was ever like this. Like people are assassinating her character. Like they're making her look like this, like money grubbing exotic dancer when she's like the most down to earth, like not, not into material things person. I know like when she, she married, had Colin, he was totally broke. You know, like they're saying that it's like he was in medical school. She didn't think he was going to be broke forever. She was making an investment, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, this girl. I know. After their wedding, Colin and Michelle relocated to Maryland for Colin's internship and residency program. A year after they wed, Michelle gave birth to a beautiful baby girl they named Audrey. John Carlin was still living in New Jersey, and now he was remarried to a Russian dentist named Julia, whom he had met on a dating site. 
One day in late 1999 or early 2000, John Carlin made an appointment with Dr. Colin Linehan. So he's living in New Jersey. He drives down to Maryland and he tells Colin that, hey, I actually am an old friend of your wife's and I don't really trust doctors. So I wanted to come all the way down to Maryland to see you because if she married you, then you must be a trustworthy guy. Okay, this is so weird. So weird. It is a blast from the creepy past over here. So weird. Now, Michelle had told Colin about, you know, the dancing in the past and that something bad had happened in Alaska, that there was like the death of somebody she loved. Okay. She had not told him that she had been, you know, implicated in that murder. And she had not told him anything about John Carlin. No, but it's smart for her to like tell him that there was something. That there was like, something. Yeah. In case it ever came back, she would not look like she was lying. Exactly. Yeah. So he didn't know who John Carlin was. John Carlin did have a bulging disc. That's what he went to the doctor for. And Colin recommended surgery, which John rejected. He said he wasn't going to do surgery. He didn't want anyone messing with his body. So instead, Colin just gave him a prescription for some painkillers. And he left, but he said he would come back at some point. And when Colin went home and told Michelle that he had met this old friend of hers, Michelle was very concerned and told him that she didn't want him seeing John Carlin and she didn't want him to continue to have him as a patient. And so Colin just chalked this up to, you know, maybe she doesn't like to talk about her exotic dancing past and this guy was a regular and she doesn't want to be reminded of it, which is totally fair, you know? When Colin's residency was up, it was time for him to repay his medical school debt by going on active duty for the U.S. Army. He was delighted to be deployed first to Madigan Army Medical Center near his hometown of Olympia, Washington. In 2001, the family moved into a fixer-upper only eight blocks from Colin's mother's house. Michelle was an instant hit in the community. She volunteered at the Rape Crisis Center. She taught Sunday school. She joined the PTA at Audrey's Catholic School, all the while earning a master's degree in public administration from Evergreen State College and renovating her home, oftentimes taking on ambitious remodeling projects all by herself. While in school, she also interned with the Washington State Executive Ethics Board. Oh my God, stop. The Ethics Board. Can you even? There, she went on record saying that it was her passion to help those affected by poverty and injustice. Oh my God, wow. So the neighbors all loved her as well. They said that she would greet, you know, new people who moved into the neighborhood with baked goods, and she opened her home to all of the neighborhood children. Everyone thought that she was a perfect mother and a great friend, and not a soul would have believed that she had a seedy past. So this was a very, very happy time for the Linehans, but unfortunately, Colin was deployed to Iraq in September of 2003. He was gone for 13 months, and the separation was very, very rough on the couple. Even after Colin came home, they still nearly divorced because they were having some residual issues, and eventually couples counseling and a military wives support group ended up getting them through this rough patch and back on the marriage track. Yeah, the military wives support group is so important. I know my cousin is active duty military 
And his wife, who's amazing, told me that they do a lot of marital counseling and they have a lot of support from their community. Okay, good. So with their marriage relatively healed, the two began to make plans to open a laser med spa with Colin's medical degree and Michelle's degree in administration. It seemed like the perfect family business. Yep. The Linehans believed that they had a bright future ahead of them. Little did they know that Alaska had decided to make a concerted effort to clear cold cases and the murder of Kent Lepink was high on the list. Two detectives, Jim Stodstill and Linda Branchflower, came out of retirement to bring Kent's murderer or murderers to justice. Oh, my God. Their gut instincts told them that Michelle was at the center of the crime, so they started by re-interviewing several witnesses. In 2005, they interviewed Scott Hilke, who told them that he had continued to see Michelle every once in a while, almost up until she met Colin. He said, though, that Colin wasn't the reason for their breakup. It was because she had displayed atrocious behavior to other divers while they were on a Cancun snorkeling trip. And that she'd also stolen items from his home and refused to return them. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) He said for the next several years, he was completely out of touch with Michelle, except for when he received a birth announcement for Audrey. So she had sent him her daughter's birth announcement, which is so wild, like the pre-social media. I'm like, yeah, don't, doesn't, does everyone know when you have a baby now? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, he had recently married a longtime female friend of his and he was married happily, he said. So he didn't respond to the announcement and he didn't really think about Michelle at all for the next couple of years until she called him out of the blue in 2004 and after a decade basically apart or like eight years just about and with both parties now married, the two struck up an affair once more. So while Colin was deployed, she would sneak around with Scott Hilke and he would start his old trick of flying her to where he had a business meeting so that his wife didn't know. And she would bring her daughter. They would get adjoining hotel rooms and she would leave Audrey sleeping in the hotel room and then go to the next room and sleep with Scott. I cannot. Oh, I cannot. I mean, I can't imagine it anyway, but also like leave the kid with grandma or something, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Scott's wife discovered a suspicious email from Michelle and confronted Michelle over the phone. And get this, she called her at the Washington State Ethics Board where she was working to confront her about the affair. Stop. Oh my God. God. Can you imagine being (laughs) Scott's wife? And being like, well, where does she work? Are you fucking kidding me? The ethics board? Are you fucking kidding me? Okay, I'm going to call that bitch at the ethics board. And I'm going to tell her what's up. Hey, uh, leader of the ethics board, um, we know you're having an affair. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so, yeah. So, basically, Scott said that the affair ended. He went to counseling with his wife. They repaired their relationship. They were still happily married at this point. They had gotten over it. And he said that, unfortunately there was nothing he could do to really help them solve this case. Like that information was a bit scandalous and it showed that Michelle hadn't truly changed her ways. Yep. But it didn't do them any good in trying to solve this murder. Yeah. Yeah. So the next person that they interviewed was John Jr., who is now a grown man and they could interview him as they wanted. 
<laughs> yep. And they had always suspected that John knew something because it seemed like Michelle had gotten him out of Alaska in a pretty hurried fashion. Yep. So they wanted to find out what that thing was. So they had to do a lot of work to track him down too. They like ended up like going to a high school girlfriend of his who put them in touch with somebody else who put them in touch with like his college girlfriend. And finally they tracked him down. And it was very emotional for John. Like he wanted to come forward, but he also didn't want to say anything that would implicate his father, whom he loved. But he did eventually admit that a day or two after the murder, he had come home early and he had caught Michelle and his father washing a large pistol in a sink filled with a liquid that smelled like bleach. He said that they both seemed surprised to see him and thrown off guard. John said that the gun was the one that his father had purchased from a want ad in Alaska, not New Jersey, like he had said. Okay. So then the detectives went through old newspapers from the time of when John Jr. said he bought the gun to literally go through the want ads to see who was advertising a desert eagle. I mean, they are like at the library looking at the microfiche. <laughs> Do you remember the microfiche? No. Oh my gosh, I can't. You guys, anybody younger than me, literally one year, because Andy's one year younger than me, is not going to know what microfiche is. I had to use it my freshman year at Emerson, I think, to look up something. So it used to be that essentially they would like almost like take pictures. It was almost like slides of old newspapers. And you had to like look through this viewing device and like crank this knob to scroll through old newspapers. Yep. I remember those. I didn't know it was called a microfiche. A microfiche. Sounds like a very little fish. <laughs> a microfiche. <laughs> so they went through all these old newspapers and they found the seller. And so they went to the seller like years later. And he's like, yep, this is the guy that bought it. Yes, it was a Desert Eagle. I can confirm all of this to you. He paid cash. He remembered everything. Whoa. Yeah. So they've got him buying the murder weapon. They have him bleaching the murder weapon after the crime. So does John Jr. not have a relationship with his dad anymore? Is that... They had had a little bit of a falling out. So okay. he wasn't doing it vindictively. He, they said he was pretty reluctant still. But there had been some sort of rift in their relationship. And I'm not sure if it was about the murder. John Carlin will say he's innocent of this. And he said that to his son as well. Oh, he also said something very weird too. He said that he had remained in touch with Michelle. So Michelle didn't want to talk to George Carlin Sr. But she was still in touch with the younger John Carlin and had even invited him to come live with her when Colin was deployed. She said that it was because she needed help with Audrey. And I think he was like just graduating college or between jobs or some something was going on where he was kind of just like floating. Okay. And so she's like, well, this could be a win-win. You come live with me, help me take care of my kid, do some chores around the house, and I'll let you have like free rent while you figure out what you're doing with your life. And so he did move in, but they immediately got into fights about what he was supposed to be doing, if he was really pulling his weight. And so he eventually moved out, but he did also tell the cops that she was having an affair with a doctor that he believed was friends with Colin as well. Oh my God. Ugh. Oh my God. Girl. 
So while they were canvassing all of the old witnesses, they also sent the now ancient laptop to a forensic crime lab (laughs) to see what a decade worth of technological innovations could uncover. Well, they were able to recover dozens of deleted emails and Word documents. Pieced together, the recovered texts told quite a sordid story. This was probably the hardest part of writing this episode, y'all, because there was like 25 pages of emails and they were all kind of insane. So I'm like trying to really pick just the best ones to illustrate this. The creme de la crop. The creme de la crap is what you're going to get because this is this is some weird shenanigans in these emails. So let's get into it. Right from the get-go, they're looking at the emails that are taking place for the two-month period before Kent was murdered. And they can tell right away that Michelle's lying. It's March 1996. And in it, she is talking about how she was caught having some sort of still sexual relationship with Scott when she's supposed to be saving herself for marriage for Kent at this point. So in the email, she basically says, yes, I was involved with Scott. I'm sorry I didn't tell you, but it's totally over. We have no sexual relationship anymore, no romantic relationship. We're just friends. And I only love you and I only want to marry you. And she just kept calling him darling Kent. And then she went on to say that Kent was just the only person in the world who truly knew what she needed. And he was the only one who could like provide it for her in the way that she needed to be loved. And she said that it was so wonderful that he realized that she was just somebody that sometimes needed to get away and be off the grid and not talk to anyone. And it was because of his understanding about that nature of her personality that meant she could marry him. That is so manipulative. Wow. Okay. It's unbelievable. So that's what she basically said. So he wrote back and he expressed some jealousy about John as well. Like he's like, okay, that's Scott, but I feel like I'm picking up some vibes between you and John too. So, you know, what can you tell me about that? And she was like, no, 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 you don't need to worry about him. It's, you know, the impotence from the lead poisoning. This, like, he totally can't even get it up. It's He's not a sexual rival. Don't you worry. But this would be contradicted by an email that John sent Michelle only 10 days later when he wrote, I want you and I am hard for you. I want to take you like I have never before. Screw Scott and the horse he rode in on. I want you and I will have you when you arrive home. I mean, yeah, it would have been fine if he didn't explicitly mention that he was hard. (laughs) Yes. Ten days later, she's like writing an email. He's totally (laughs) impotent. We can't have sex. Ten days later, there's an email where it's like, I am hard for you. My penis is full of blood and it is rigid. (sighs) Oh, my God. After an assurance from Michelle that neither Scott nor John were love or sex rivals, Kent wrote a friendly email to John where he explained his love for Michelle and how painful it was to feel that way. And I included this one because so often, you know, the victim's voice is lost in these types of stories. And I really wanted you to see how sweet Kent was and how much he really loved Michelle. From the moment I met Michelle, I fell in love with her, Kent wrote on March 11th, 1996. 
It would seem pretty strange to say that, knowing where she used to work, but when she would do table dances for me, I was watching her eyes. Sure, it's hard not to see the naked body in front of you, but I felt more for her than just a sex object. I knew that we were going to be married to each other almost from the beginning. I gave her a diamond one month after we met, and we talked about life together. Sex, waiting for a while, of course, having children, etc. I would have married her right then and there, but we talked and decided not to set any dates right away. Then the first sign of trouble was when Scott came into Michelle's life. I was told that Scott was just a friend and that he was gay. Oh my God. She is using that line on everyone. It's offensive, Michelle. You have nothing to worry about, TT, she said to me, and I really didn't think about it. I'm supposed to trust the one I love, and I believe everything that she tells me, he wrote. Then he found the faxes that she had left lying around, and he said that even a blind man could read what they said. I felt as if somebody had hit me on the head with a sledgehammer, he wrote. Those faxes pretty much spelled out the fact that I was not the person I thought I was to Michelle, and that the gay friend that I didn't have to worry about was not only engaged to Michelle, but was also having a pretty steamy sex life with her to boot. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he went on to tell John how much he appreciated his friendship and how he and Michelle had basically settled everything and she wasn't seeing Scott anymore. But, you know, it was good for him to have a male friend like John that he could kind of like tell these things to, you know. And then there were a ton of emails about wedding planning between Kent and Michelle, with Michelle blatantly asking Kent for money without making any real promises back and forth. But behind Kent's back, Michelle wrote this bizarre and sarcastic email to her mom that showed her disdain for Kent and his family. And they would later read this at trial. It's just, it's so weird and just mean. In a long, sarcastic email to her mother on March 29th, Michelle related what she had said was a conversation with Kent's relatives when they had asked her about her own family. Now, this is all not true. I told them my mother never loved me like she loved my sister. I explained to them that I wasn't your real daughter and that you were forced to take me on as your daughter only because your third cousin had me when she was 13 and that the whole family suffered because it was her brother who had fathered the baby, me. So I think they understood. I also explained that a deal you made had gone sour because of my lack of talents. And that's how I ended up in Alaska. Kent's parents, Michelle wrote, were naturally begging me for more. So with a little sobbing on the phone, I told them the rest, she wrote, explaining to her mother that she had given Kent's parents a preposterous story, and these are her words, of how she had been sold into prostitution with Eskimos only to fail at it and disappoint her parents who refused to take her back until she was saved by meeting a fisherman from Michigan. And then my destiny became clear, she wrote. All the clouds moved out of my small, confused mind as the tears cleared my eyes. I began to see an angel appear, T.T. He came and swept me off the street and accepted me and taught me how to love and be loved. He showed me the way of life. And well, all of my dreams came true that day. I took one look at this man and I knew I wanted to be pregnant with his children for the rest of my life. I was put on earth for him. Michelle said that she thanked Ken's parents for producing such a God-given gift who showed me the way of life. Then came the punchline. Michelle hit the caps lock key and typed, 
ha 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 Okay, guys, there's 44 ha's here. 44 ha's. <gasps> Just joshing ya. Funny, huh? She then admitted to her mother that she had never spoken to his parents and they haven't asked to speak with me since I said, I didn't know your home phone number. Ha ha ha. The tone and those 44 ha's flew in the face of her love always from your future wife email to Kent that she had sent just two days before. And this email, like I said, would be used to show her real intentions and the fact that she never loved Kent. Yep. So the same day as this mean, sarcastic email, she also emailed with John Carlin about their plans to have him liquidate all of his assets and buy Michelle a bird sanctuary in Costa Rica. He told her that he loved her so much and that he would do anything for her and he would actually die for her, he said, but he was afraid that she'd take his money and just run away with Scott which was really accurate because there was other emails from Michelle to Scott where she was trying to get him to come live with her in Costa Rica on a bird sanctuary. Uh, no wonder she wanted this computer to get wiped, huh? Yep. It appeared then that Michelle visited her mother in New Orleans and John wrote her some bizarre drunken emails where he alleged to Michelle that Kent had wanted to, quote, stick it up his ass but he swore he had no interest in that sort of thing and promised to, quote, fuck Michelle like no other when she came home. And even though John and Michelle claimed that Kent was the gay one, in one email, John wrote to Michelle, you really enjoy telling people that I was with a whore who was a man, don't you? Hmm, oh, well, I guess you like humiliation. <sighs> John's like the only one she hasn't said is gay. <laughs> I don't like nobody knew what was going on here at all. And they're all living together. So these emails are going around three people who are living together, plus Scott Hilke, who's somehow still in this mix. There was also proof of her lying about the million dollar life insurance policies, saying that her grandfather had paid for it repeatedly when, of course, the life insurance company confirmed that she paid for it with her own check. Yep. Hand-delivered. <laughs> Hand-delivered, making sure it's going into effect. In early April, only a few weeks now before Kent's murder, the relationship between Michelle and Kent seemed to get more contentious. It seemed like Kent was finally trying to assert himself a little bit more. Yep. And Michelle was not having it. It also seemed like Kent was maybe starting to do a little detective work, and he was going through the computer that Michelle used that they shared, which is probably another reason why she stole it. And he was kind of like not really trusting her anymore. So they were fighting a lot about that in these emails. And she's saying, you know, if you don't trust me, then we can't get married. We can't be together. So you better start, stop snooping. This is your last, you know, final strike out. If you do it again, like I'm calling off the wedding. So she's threatening him. He's like trying to figure out what's going on with her. She was also mad at him for not buying her some things that he had apparently promised to buy for her. And Kent countered that she expected him to just wire her money at any point for anything without involving him or his family in the wedding planning process. So she'd say like, oh, I booked a caterer. You have to wire me this money or I'm going to get this dress custom made. Make sure your parents give you the money for it, you know? 
But she's not like his mom wanted to come out and like look at locations where they wanted to get married and, you know, maybe go see her try on wedding dresses, like stuff like moms do. And so he's kind of like, why are you cutting me and my family out of this whole process, but then demanding money for it? You know? Yeah. This whole wedding dress thing ended up being like a huge kerfuffle too. And they ended up getting into a fight about that as well, which is in this next email. Ken said that he was in the process of taking out a loan for the fishing season. My advice right now is that we had better start looking at a budget, he wrote. Let's do it right, but let's do it within the limits of our pocketbooks. I want you to know that I'm going to find a way to pay for your dress. His note triggered another argument. Sorry, the dress is already ordered and paid for, she snapped in an April 9th email. You should have told me that two weeks ago when I was asked about it. I don't want to discuss it now while I'm very upset because she claimed that she had been embarrassed in front of her family in New Orleans when he didn't immediately wire her the money so she could pay for the dress. Oh my God. Her family who sold her off to Eskimos. I'm sorry, Kent wrote back. I'm sorry for a lot of things. What I'm really sorry for, I'm sorry that I misled you. From the very beginning, I have misled you by letting money be a bigger part of our relationship than love. It is my love for you that has kept me around. By spending every dime that I had and then asking my dad for more money only put up a false front to you. It made you feel like you had an unlimited budget by which you could just go out and do anything you wanted to. This is a really, really sweet and heartfelt point. You know, he's trying to get what he thinks is his real relationship that's headed towards marriage on the tracks here. Around the same time, John wrote Michelle a very cryptic email. So let's break this one down. The last night you were here was so special to me, he wrote one of several gushing emails. I know that you did not want to do what was done, but yet you did it for me. I will remember that night until I die. I will never forget. I was truly happy that night. I have longed for that for so long. Happiness. It felt very good. And now I know the feeling of spending the night with someone you love. He loved her so much, he wrote in another email, that it had strengthened his resolve to make their lives better and take action. I'm not going to wait, he wrote. I'm going to end this soon. I am the one who will take the risk. I cannot wait. It will end. You know what I'm saying here. So sure sounds like, to me, like they banged and that was what he needed to get him off the fence to murder Kent. 100%. And if that wasn't sketchy enough, here's what John said to Michelle on April 24th, only one week before Kent was murdered. Please be happy and don't let me cause you to be unhappy, he wrote in a letter saved on his computer April 24th. I will be the one who will take the loss, he continued. You have asked me several times to tell you what to do and that you will do it. Okay, I will do this. John did not specify what he was planning to do for Michelle, a woman for whom he said he would give his life. John ended the letter with another provocative statement. You'll be just fine, Michelle. Just give it a few weeks. Your life is about to get a lot better. You will see. Now the ball's in your court. You are now making the decisions, not me. You will decide what happens. One week before the murder. Yikes. On April 28th, which was only two or three days before Kent was murdered, Michelle wrote to John, I can't wait to go on our getaway. Did you know that you can buy a citizenship in the Seychelles for around $10 million? And no matter what crimes you've committed, they will not extradite. (gasps) They are the only country that won't send you back to the U.S. I found that out yesterday. 
Have you given any thought to where you want to go? She added, learn to dive, maybe Cancun, Cabo, anywhere. Wow. (laughs) And then like literally two days after that, Ken changed his will and he changed the beneficiary of his life insurance policy, which she did not know. So the police theorized that Kent may have snooped enough to realize that something was going on, you know, that there was something between John and Michelle and definitely Michelle and Scott. And that when he was trying to track her down in hope, he was trying to track her down to confront her. Then they said that Michelle and John had created the hope cabin note to basically have a reason to lure Kent to Hope. And after Kent's fathers left, they believed that John pretended like, okay, okay, yes, you're right. I've known where she is this whole time. I'll just take you out to see her. And that's when they drove out to Hope. And he was like, oh, it's here. They get out of the truck and John shoots Kent in the back. So they believed at this point that they had enough now to arrest both Michelle and John, and they did. In October 2006, more than a decade after Kent's death, Michelle and John were indicted for murder and extradited to Alaska where they would stand trial. Okay. But was she like at home with her baby and husband? Like what was the situation? Yeah, so they they came to question her first and just like make sure they knew where she was living, what her deal was. And then they like basically came back and arrested her. So she kind of knew what was going on. And I guess that Colin was really upset about this because they got a lawyer right away, a defense attorney. And Colin begged the defense attorney and the defense attorney begged the authorities to please let them know if they were going to arrest Michelle so that it wouldn't be in front of her daughter at her home, that she could like go to Alaska by herself and be like, I'm turning myself in. But I guess that's not how it went down. I guess they decided to just scoop her. And it was in front of her daughter. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it was either like in front of her daughter or just like in front of like it was at her home, basically. So maybe her in front of her community, you know, it was in any case, it was not the way you wanted to do it. Not at the ethics. No, you didn't want the neighborhood and the ethics board to know that you were being indicted in a decade old murder where you had bled a man that you met while being an exotic dancer dry and potentially gotten one of your million lovers to kill him for you for an insurance policy that you didn't even get. Whoopsie. Whoopsie. Kent got you. And then he fingered you from beyond the grave. Oh my God. Uh, You know what I mean. (laughs) I didn't mean it like that. Oh, my God. And so, yeah, they did also try to get John to flip on Michelle. Like, they they pushed pretty hard being like, you know what? She's a bitch. They even said she was a bitch. It came up in the trial later that it was inappropriate for a police (laughs) officer to call a person in the case a bitch. Yeah, they're like, she's a pretty sneaky, conniving bitch, and she tricked you, too. And you know what? We could probably offer you a deal if you want to come clean about what she put you up to. And John does maintain that he was innocent, that he had nothing to do with it. He didn't know who murdered Kent. He's a smart criminal. Yeah. So, yeah, this case was huge in the media. It was the whole, and I'm quoting here, stripper turned PTA mom killer aspect, which you can imagine blew up. I mean, it's just red meat for reporters, you know? 
and nosy Nancy's like myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Colin was particularly irate about the whole thing. And he talked to the media a lot, trying to counterbalance all of the bad stuff that was being said about Michelle. And he's like, this is crazy. She worked as an exotic dancer for less than two years. Since then, she's done such incredible stuff. She's an amazing mother. She's gotten a master's degree. You know, she is the hardest working woman I know. Like you are reducing her to a period of her life that she was young and you're not even recognizing, you know, who she is now. And he also said that they were, they were saying like, they were calling her the stripper soccer mom. Oh my God. And he was like, our daughter doesn't even play soccer. So that's just dumb. (laughs) I was like, I think that's beside the point. They were just going for clever alliteration there, buddy. I don't think it really matters whether Audrey played soccer. Yeah, no, but I feel, I like feel bad for him. I do feel really bad for him too. I mean, he, and he told everyone he knew about it because it doesn't matter. If she hadn't killed somebody, it really doesn't matter. Exactly. It's none of anybody's business. And it should not affect, like, her profession should not affect a jury, uh, certainly. It's not what she was doing. It was how she treated the people that she met in that capacity. Yes, and it's unfortunate that it then gives any and all exotic dancers or sex workers a negative image. Yes, of the money-hungry, like, out to con you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, It's terrible. But yeah, he made it very, very clear that he stood behind his wife 100%, as did his own mother, who he would testify for his wife, and so would his mother. And many members of their community spoke to 48 Hours and said that they were 100% behind Michelle and believed that she was innocent. Uh, She was able to make her $150,000 bail and thus was able to stay cozy in her Olympia, Washington home with her family while John Carlin was broke and could not make bail. So he was stuck in prison in Alaska. Sounds right. Yep. And shortly after his arrest, his wife filed for divorce. Oh, no. Yeah. So think about that. Michelle's cozy at home with the support of her loving family and community. Dr. Husband. And her handsome doctor husband who says no matter what, he's going to stand by her. John Carlin's in a jail cell. His wife's divorcing him. Somehow, Michelle always gets out of these situations scot-free and her lovers are the ones that pay, huh? And he still didn't flip. Still didn't flip. Wow. Well, let's find out what happens at their trials, shall we? Please. So John's trial was first, and it started in March of 2007. Judge Philip Voland, who participated in the People Magazine's show about this case, presided over both John and Michelle's trials. In his opening statement, prosecutor Pat Gullifson said that the evidence would show that John Carlin had owned a Desert Eagle 44, had lied about it, and that seductive Michelle had duped John into killing Kent so she could walk away with $1 million and more. As an added bonus, John would also get to annihilate a rival for Michelle's love. Mm-hmm. Gullivan said that the jury would see that John had also been a victim of Michelle's manipulations, but that didn't make him any less of a murderer. The defense argued that there was absolutely no way that the state could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it was John Carlin who had killed Kent Lepink. They argued that the letter from Kent to his parents had put a laser focus on Michelle and John, and the cops hadn't even looked at any other suspects. 
Also, timing-wise, it was actually possible that Michelle could have killed Kent herself. They, like, timed the drive from, like, the airport to Hope, and there was a possibility that she could have done it herself. She also had handled John's gun before. There was a record of her taking a firearms class with it. (laughs) So they're saying, why are you not saying that Michelle could have just done it? Obviously, that's a possibility. And we are all in agreement that Michelle was completely manipulative and lying to all of her suitors. So why isn't a possibility that there was another guy that she seduced that could have also killed Kent? Yep. Yep. Very vague. Very good points from the defense as well. The evidence that the prosecution presented was the emails, particularly the ones about his love for Michelle and the ones where he cryptically discussed what he was going to do for her, proof that he had owned the Desert Eagle. They also, you know, brought up Kent's letter from Beyond the Grave, and they also had John Jr. testify against his father. Oh. Which is really such a bummer for John Jr. He didn't want to, but he had to. And... I guess it was just like a really tense moment where he looked really sorry while he was testifying about finding them washing the gun and that they said like his dad just like looked at him and like had no malice in his face was just like looked sad for putting his son in that situation. And there's a 48 hours about this. I think it's called love and death in Alaska. And he's on it. And he said that he didn't believe that his father was guilty. He did not actually believe that he was the one that shot him. It seemed like he didn't say this outright, but it seemed like he was suggesting like Michelle had probably done it, but his dad loved her so much he was covering up for her. Yep. Yeah. So Scott Hilke also testified and most of his important testimony was about the gun too, saying that he knew it belonged to John. He had seen it in the home that they shared when he visited. And he knew that Michelle had actually borrowed it to use it for target practice. So John's lawyers said that John didn't have any real motive for killing Kent. So they're like, okay, so what if he does? He kills Kent for Michelle. So Michelle gets a million dollars and runs away with another man. Like these emails show that he knew the score. Like, so what's the point? What is he getting out of this is what they were asking. They also said that John's whereabouts for that 24-hour period in which Kent was murdered, like, could be confirmed. There were some people that could alibi him. They were saying, like, maybe he did it in the middle of the night because there was a big unaccounted for overnight time. But the defense tried to say that they had a dog who barked every time the garage door would open. And so they were like, the son didn't hear the dog bark, so there's no way he could have left or come back because he would have known. (laughs) That was there response to that. Okay. (laughs) One interesting witness for the prosecution was John's very recently divorced wife who testified that she had found a trophy that was engraved with Kent Lepink's name in their home. That trophy he kept talking about, which is so crazy because we talk about serial killers keeping trophies. Uh Uh-huh. And he had a literal trophy of his kill with the man's name on it. Why Can you imagine coming across that while your husband's in jail? Chilling. That is, Uh I just got the creeps. So in closing, the prosecutor reminded the jury that under Alaska law, an accomplice to murder is considered just as guilty as the murderer themselves. 
well, then there's no, <laughs> there's no future for him. There's no doubt. And that's basically what he was saying. He was saying, if you don't need to quibble about whether he actually took the gun and shot yeah. Kent, or if you believe he was involved mm-hmm. in the murder, then you need to vote guilty. Yep. After a day and a half of deliberations, it seems that the jury did just that because they returned a guilty verdict. Yeah, there was no quibbling. There was no quibbling. John IV was crushed that his testimony had helped put his father away, potentially for life. But the sentencing would have to wait until after Michelle's trial. Oh, shit. People were very interested to see if John's conviction would actually aid in Michelle's defense. As John had been convicted of the murder already, her defense could say, look, you've already got the killer. He clearly did it out of jealousy and without Michelle's knowledge. Mm. And John Carlin's defense attorney was particularly dismayed that John's conviction could allow the real perpetrator to get off potentially. And Michelle does have a habit of wriggling out of these types of situations. As my grandmother would say, she could fall down in a pig pen and come up with a new suit. Which grandma said that? Ellie. (laughs) That's so funny. That's so her. So her. She would say about my dad, about how lucky my dad was. Yeah. She was like, and how he was in so much trouble growing up, like all the time. But he like finally told her when he was like in his 40s about all the shit that she didn't know about that he got into trouble and hid. (laughs) She's like, and she turns to me and she's like, your father, he could fall down in a pig pen and just come up with a new suit. A demure-looking Michelle stood trial in September of 2007 with her husband and in-laws behind her for support. The prosecution knew it was going to have a harder time with this case. First of all, John Jr. was racked with guilt about his father and didn't want to testify. And Michelle's sister, who had the important testimony about the computer and what Michelle had said about Kent, She also didn't want to testify because her family was, you know, giving her pressure to not testify against her sister. Unreal. But ultimately, they decided to do it because they would have been subpoenaed to testify anyway. Okay, good. Good, good, good. The prosecution's case was pretty much the same story that we've already covered, that she did it for the money and she made John Carlin do it. But of course, she is still the killer, even if she didn't pull the trigger. Yep. The defense, of course, said that it was all John and no Michelle. But their motive for the killing was brand new. They said that John had killed Kent after the two men had had a homosexual relationship that went wrong. She's still writing this. She's still doing this. She's still saying, let's stick to that story. That's the one. But it's like a different story. Yeah. Of the same story. Yeah. So that's what they're going with here. Scott Hilke testified for the prosecution, detailing his sexual affair with Michelle while her patriotic husband was fighting for his country in Iraq. The testimony served to counter all of the glowing character witnesses that talked about Michelle as this wonderful, changed woman that helped everybody all the time. I also, I can't imagine how Colin felt. I don't know if any of this came up in Discovery, so I... He might have found out about Scott Hilkey and, you know, what John Jr. testified to, the other affair. He might have found that out at trial. Yeah. I don't or, know. you know, Michelle I mean, could have warned him, maybe. It's just crazy because if she didn't, if she could have just like chilled and not slept with Scott again and like not had the affair with 
while she was married to Colin, I feel like it could have been such a cleaner position of her character. During yeah, I mean, she was 23 when the murder occurred. So she was like 21 to 23 or 20 to 22, I think, while she was working at the club. I feel like it would have gone a lot further with the jury if she was like, I was a young woman who was confused and I made a lot of mistakes, but yep. I am not that person, you know? Yep. But now there's people saying you are and you're going to like ethics boards and having an affair while your husband's away fighting a war. I think it also triggers something in all people. Nobody likes a hypocrite. No. It's like, it's like makes us all so angry. So angry. So yeah, Michelle's old dancer pal, Laura, testified that Kent had spent over $50,000 on Michelle's renovations. And she also told the story about the last seduction, the movie, and about how Michelle allegedly said she wanted to be like the evil seductress in it. So this movie thing got very controversial about whether it was going to be allowed into evidence and the prosecution wanted to screen it for the jury and the defense, of course, didn't want the movie in at all because they said it had nothing to do with the actual case. And so the judge decided to watch it himself over the weekend. And Hilarious. And so he came back. With a bowl of popcorn. Okay, it's a it's a fine like soapy Hollywood thriller that has no basis in reality. So we will not be screening it for the jury, but I'm allowing the testimony about the movie to stay in. Okay, so then if the jury people wanted to go watch it themselves, they could. Yes, they were, but they weren't allowed to watch it while they were jurors. Oh, yeah. So he said he said basically like don't watch it until the trial's over. But he wasn't, like, striking from the record that she said that. So this would end up being a problem later on, that it was left in at all or that it was allowed to come up, this whole movie thing. Another controversial piece of evidence was the letter that Kent wrote to his parents, the one that encouraged them to take Michelle down. The judge had allowed it to be evidence and allowed it to be talked about in testimony, but the defense had not wanted it to be included because they essentially said that it's Kent testifying in that letter. But because he's dead, they can't cross-examine him. So therefore, it's illegal. Okay. But the judge allowed it to stay in. In closing, the prosecution said that Michelle had bled Kent dry, financially speaking, and when he barely had a cent left to his name, she had tried to cash in and all he had left, which was his life. The defense countered that the hope note was just to throw Kent off the scent so he didn't end up coming down to Tahoe. And they also said that the younger John was just straight up lying. They're like, nope, Michelle was never there. She wasn't standing next to John while they were washing the gun. He's just a liar. The kid's lying. Yeah, on the stand. Yep. They also said that the letter and the movie reference were just ridiculous and had nothing to do with reality. And it would just like, so like they urged the jury to like not pay attention to those things. So it seems like they're just trying to scapegoat everything. Yeah, exactly. And they admitted too, they were like, look, she was a dishonest 23 year old who was juggling men, you know, and that's not a good look, but it doesn't make her a a murderer. So like you might not like her or you might not like her character or the character of who she was when she was 23. That doesn't mean she had anything to do with this. After 20 hours of deliberation, the jury said, nah, and they declared Michelle guilty of murder. Wow. 
So some people blamed the verdict on the gender imbalance in the jury. The jury was nine women and three men. So they said that women are generally harsher to other women than men are. Now, one female juror said that that wasn't at all true and that she didn't feel like she was being harder on Michelle and she wasn't faced at all about Michelle's prior profession. Well, another female juror said that she felt the fact that Michelle had been an exotic dancer was relevant to the case. She said... When you're table dancing or you're stripping or you're lap dancing, what you are doing is soliciting yourself to get money from men by pleasing them. The whole point is you're manipulating feelings to get something in return. If you're doing well at that as an occupation, you must be pretty good at it. Now, it doesn't imply that if you're good at it, you're going to be a killer, of course. But it just so happened to work out that that's what she did. She was good at it and she used it. Yeah. And she's also a murderer. (laughs) She's a murderer. So John Carlin was interviewed from prison following Michelle's conviction, and he claimed that her defense had been just full of lies, obviously. There was no sort of sexual relationship with Kent. There had been another suggestion that, like, you know, because I guess John Jr. had said that he felt uncomfortable around Kent sometimes. And so there was, like, another theory that John Sr. had killed Kent because he had made a move on John Jr., And he was like, no, that's absolutely not true. He said this from prison. I would never, also Kent would never, I would have never let some guy live in our house if he made my son feel uncomfortable, you know? So he said it was all total bullshit. And he said that he wishes Michelle had just told the truth. But he did admit after the fact that he had gotten rid of the gun. He still said that he did not kill Kent, but he said that afterwards when he found out that Kent had been killed by the same type of gun, which... I don't think he had found out. I think it was only a couple days later that he got rid of the gun. So I don't know what he's trying to say here. He was worried that either he himself, his son or Michelle would be implicated in the murder. So he bleached it to remove fingerprints and then he tossed it in a grocery store dumpster. Yeah, I honestly like I feel like with her having done the shooting range lessons that she could have definitely done it. 100%. I agree with you. I I agree with you that she could have. I think that the only big question is like, she's never had to do a thing for herself. Would she actually do this on her own? And then those emails made it sound like John was going to do something for her, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like. It's really murky. It's murky. So he tried to spin a totally different story at his own sentencing. So at sentencing with Judge Voland, he said that he thought that Kent had no money and was clearly losing Michelle and that he was suicidal and that he had paid somebody to kill him. And that that's why he had all of those documents in his pockets to set them up. And he had sent the letter. So he's like, this is gone girl before gone girl. He's like, he gone girled himself, but for real, because he's dead. And now he's blaming all of us. That was his theory. Yeah. I don't know. That now you be, just sound like you're crazy. Yeah. That's a conspiracy theory right there. Yeah. Yeah. And Judge Volan thought so too. And he was like, absolutely <laughs> not. He characterized the murder as a deliberate cold-blooded homicide for money and sentenced John Carlin to 99 years in jail with parole possible after 30. But by that time, John would be in his 80s. Oh. even to just have a shot at life on the outside. 
In March of 2008, Michelle faced her own sentencing and tearfully begged the court to have mercy and return her to her home with her daughter and her husband. Judge Volan said, yeah, no. And also sentenced Michelle to 99 years. Yeah, babe. Come on. Yeah. He said, it was a calculated homicide accomplished through the deceit deception and manipulation it was done for the most venal of reasons and it was dismissed by the two participants in the most casual of ways it was a man killed by his friend and his fiance in my mind i can find no principal distinction between the puppet who pulls the trigger and the puppeteer who pulls the strings and in my judgment ms linehan you were the puppeteer who pulled the strings Ooh. Michelle's lawyers instantly began appealing, as did John's. And in February of 2010, the appeals court ruled that Judge Voland had erred in allowing into evidence Kent's letter to his parents, as well as the testimony about the movie, The Last Seduction. As a result, Michelle's guilty verdict was overturned. This is so bananas to me because I can totally see... I mean, I can understand the appeal, but like we were talking a couple of cases ago about Margaret Rudin's terrible attorney and she didn't even get another trial. Yeah, that's crazy. It's so crazy. So she was kept in jail for a little bit longer. And then a random businessman who said that he didn't know her ended up paying something like $25,000, I think, to get her out of jail because she was technically on bail again because she was awaiting another trial. Okay. And then Alaska decided that it didn't want to indict her again and that they weren't going to have a second trial. So she was out of prison after serving just about two years, completely scot-free and no... Nothing. What? Isn't that insane? So where is she now? She's out. Um, She's living in Tacoma, Washington, where she runs a laser clinic. Unfortunately, John Carlin did not have the same luck. Though his attorneys were also appealing on similar grounds, he was beaten to death in prison in late (gasps) 2008. What? It was a heartbreaking loss for his son, who I'm sure has never gotten over the guilt of testifying against his father and, you know, subsequently, in his mind, you know, contributing to his death. But yeah, he died brutally in prison. In 2015, John was posthumously exonerated. Oh my God, Jess. It's so tragic. It's so tragic because even if he did pull that trigger, it was for what? One roll in the hay? Yeah. He paid with everything. He lost his life, his wife, the relationship he had with his child. Yikes. Yeah. So the judge is actually on the People Magazine show, like I said, and he talks about this and he said, you know what? That's just the way it goes sometimes. Like my decision was reversed. And he said that he believes in the justice system and that, you know, while some people are upset about how this turned out, he believes it's better to let somebody who's guilty go than have an innocent person unfairly prosecuted. Yep. 
So he's like, it's a good thing that they, you know, we have the system that we do, even if it might let somebody out who is potentially guilty. So, like I said, as of a 2021 Cinemaholic article, which was entitled Where Are Michelle Linehan and John Carlin Now by Creedy Mahotra, she said that Michelle was in Tacoma and it appeared that Colin and Michelle were potentially separated because they are no longer living together. Okay. I hope Colin got a nice girl. I hope so too. He was such a good guy. I mean, he stood by her through... A lot of muck, you know? Ugh. Everybody in the story just about, like, I don't even want to say that about John if he really is the killer, but I feel like everybody deserved better. This was just, she's a wrecking ball, this woman, you know? Yeah. I would not let her touch my face. Okay, guys. So I do not have a Wikipedia fun fact, unfortunately, but we're going to start a new segment when there is a strip club involved. We are going to read... Reviews of whatever that club is, which I think is better than Wikipedia fun fact. I think it is too. We have to come up with a name for this segment though. So, the Great Alaskan Bush Company has a 3.6 on Google, and you know, some mixed reviews. One person said drinks could be cheaper, but overall, a good place. Another person said horrible place. Old beer, uncaring staff, smelled like fish. Uh, a Jesus Mora wrote a month ago, the women here can't dance to save their lives, but they sure were beautiful. However, they did have other talents. I came here a few days ago and the shirt waitress, man, she was great. She was friendly and never let my drink get empty. Great place to come and have a drink and enjoy the show. By the way, I was on vacation from Compton, California. Thank you, Jesus. So I think that's enough reviews. What do you think, yeah, I think so, too. I think I think we closed out on a positive note. If I'm ever in Anchorage, I'm going to check this place out, though. It is like it's, it's supposed to have this like Wild West theme. And it's like done up like an old like bar hall, you know, where there'd be like a stage act and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to steer clear of the strip club that smells like hot garbage. According to no, review. just old beer and fish, Andy. It's Alaska. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show. I mean, what do you think of that story, Andy? I am very unsettled. I know. I thought it would maybe provoke the Andy rageometer. Where are you on the ometer? I'm not really raged. I'm just unsettled. Yeah. You know, yeah, what I mean? it's hard when we have a show where justice wasn't really served, huh? Yeah. I guess that the case is actually still open. Whoa. Yeah, I don't know if it's still being actively pursued, but it's technically still open. And I do think that they could choose to take her to trial at any time, you know? So who knows? Who knows what the future will hold? In conclusion, just a pro tip, guys. When you do get engaged, when that happy moment occurs, you should probably double check that your fiancé isn't engaged to two other people. Yeah, or engaged in animal hoarding. You know, there's a fine line between animal loving and animal hoarding, and she may have tiptoed over it. Yeah, I didn't even get to mention on the show that she also apparently stole John Jr.'s dog. When they took the RV, she was like, I'll um, keep the dog for you in Louisiana, and I'll send him on to you later, and it never gave him his dog back. So she's an animal hoarder and an animal thief. And as always... Trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up. Yeah.
Love you guys. Thank love you so much you. for listening.